Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Sicko Mode where uh, we have an exclusive post-leadership election interview with our comrade, uh, the new leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer QC. Welcome to the show, Sir Keir. Hello, Siang. Uh, please, it's just Keir. You don't have to bother with the Sir or the QC. Okay, um, hello, Keir. Welcome to the show. Hello, Siang. It, it is such an honour and a privilege to be on the Sicko Mode podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, how are you feeling now that you've become the leader? I am absolutely elated. We've chased the hard left out of the party and I'm now in a position to snuggle up to Bojo, to lick his little toes when he's sick. And at the night, I sleep in, in, the, in the big bed in Buckingham Palace with the Queen. Um, are you sure that is uh, ad uh, advised? Um, uh, unless you're in the same household as both Boris Johnson and the Queen. Well, I've been ensured that it is the constitutional role of the leader of the opposition to uh, be the little spoon with the Queen. And that, that goes beyond whatever uh, Chris Titty recommends. Okay, um, do, you, do you know if uh, Jeremy Corbyn performed this role before you? <laughs> I've heard that Jeremy Corbyn was exceptional at Cunnilingus, but that he never performed <laughs> the actual constitutional role of the leader of the opposition, which is to bump and grind with the Prime Minister <laughs> during uh, secret cabinet briefings. Oh, uh, we're really getting some real uh, revelatory statements from uh, Keir today. Um, what? Why did you decide to come on the podcast? Well, I want to reach out to the hard left, to the Trotskyists, yeah. to the militant, and I know you're in militant, and I want to say, get <laughs> out of my party. Get the fuck out of my party. I'm in charge now. We are electable. Okay. We are mainstream, and we are middle of the road. And I think that the future of socialism is, uh, you know, creating a new ministry for bootlicking and to serve up the mm -hmm. national cuisine of Britain, which is boot, and to meet the electorate mm -hmm. where they are that way. Uh, well, it, I guess it's refreshing to hear such honesty from a politician. Um, I actually have left the Labour Party, so uh, thanks, Well, good, you. good. <laughs> See, I, I've got to go. I've just matched with a boot on, on Tinder, and I've got to go fuck that boot. Okay. <laughs> so I'll see you later. All right. Ta-ta. Uh, okay, uh, well, Keir's off to is a busy day of uh, a lot of uh, strange sexual appetites, so uh, I guess that's the end of our interview. Goodbye. Hello. And welcome Hello, to... comrades. <laughs> Hello, comrades. Welcome to episode four of Sicko Mode. I am Siang. And I am Chief Minister for Health, Twat Mancock. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> You're doing a really bad job. I know. I'm messing up right now. <laughs> Feeling How... cute and sad right now. <laughs> <laughs> not like you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's not. I'm. It's actually Joe. I'm not going to keep lying to the listeners. It's Joe. Yeah. Uh, it's very good to be here doing the episode the long-awaited <laughs> episode it's very good to be here after we, struggle and yeah yeah i was on strike so we recorded the episode a few times then had to delete it in order to not cross the picket line yeah yeah uh, no, it was, exactly it was actually it was comrade gremlins deleted one of the episodes yeah and then then some evil gremlins destroyed my computer <laughs> 
So that means that today's episode is even better because we've just been gestating it like a massive cosmic baby, making it more and more powerful as it kind of sits in there and it's come out fully grown, this fantastic episode yeah. that we're about to deliver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what beautiful. Okay, yeah. Um... Well, I'm waiting for you to ask me what's happening in my life. Okay. Other than destroying my computer. I see. What is happening in your life other than destroying your computer? Well, I've got something quite extraordinary to tell you, actually. Mm -hmm. Last night, I had a bit of an ordeal. Mm -hmm. And I haven't told you about this yet, have I? This is like a big surprise. Yeah. So so I woke up at 4.30 in the morning after I cleaned my room the day before and had a very sensible time. Yeah. I was not living a party lifestyle, but I woke up at 4.30. That's so early. And I, I know, well, and I didn't get up at that time to study. <laughs> I was going to get some water because like the obscene pervert I am, I'd left the heating on, even oh, though it was okay. 100 degrees. Yeah. Wow. And I, so I, I slung out of bed and I stubbed my toe on something extremely sharp. Oh, no. And it was, my foot was throbbing. I was like, what the hell's going on? I was like, I was reaching around trying to find the lamp in the darkness. And I turned it on thinking like, oh, I, it feels like it might be bleeding. I'm, I'm sure it's not bleeding very much. And I turned the lamp on, there's blood. Oh my everywhere. God. Pools of blood oh. on the carpet. And I'm like, oh my God. I, my, the li- my life flashed before my eyes. Because I instantly thought, hospitals are in triage. They're making tough decisions. If I call A&E, they're going to tell me to deal with it. And yeah. I'm going to bleed to death here in my student hall. <laughs> out of your toe. Yeah, unknown and unloved, out of a, a, a toe-stubbing injury. What an ignominious way to go. Um, but I go to the bathroom and um, I have a look at it. It's hard to really see what's going on. But mm. as listeners will remember, and as you will remember, that before lockdown, I thought the apocalypse was coming. So I bought oh. a first aid kit and oh. a tub of medicines. <laughs> And so I actually uh, cleaned and dressed my wound in a massive bandage and then elevated my foot above my heart um, so the blood would run out of it. And I actually kind of uh, was a field doctor unto myself. Wow. Yeah. And I've done surgery to myself before. So I was, I'm, I'm quite skilled with, with the knife. Um, what what and, surgery have you done to yourself before? Oh, you know, just removals, just minor surgery. We've, we've all done minor surgery to ourselves. Um, right. But so I rang my mum this morning because she's a nurse. Mm. And I was like, Mama, last night, I thought I was going to die. I, I was, you know, I was thinking of all my treasured memories. And I was writing out a will in my head. And then I undressed it while on the phone to her because she was going to talk me through redressing it properly. Yeah. And it turned out it was the tiniest little pinprick on the bottom <laughs> of my toes. <laughs> It was so teeny tiny. Like I kept scrubbing with antiseptic and being like, funny, I can't uh, actually see it anywhere. <laughs> and it turned out it was absolutely nothing. And then I, yeah, and I was saying to my mum, I thought I'd hit one of the like uh, venous arterial yeah. um, kind of things in, in the foot. And she was like, that's about a one in a million chance. I'm sure you haven't. Yeah. And basically I just kind of, it was deep and there was some blood and I freaked out. I thought I was going to die. Then woke up at ten, and I was actually just wow. completely fine. Fair enough. Yeah. Those like tiny wounds can like bleed loads, though. Like when I was like yes, exactly. I mean, when I was like eight or something, I was really dumb. I was trying to like put staples into a stapler without wasting a staple, so I just stapled my thumbs together. 
basically. Oh my gosh. Wait, you stapled what together? I stapled my thumbs together. Oh my gosh. One of them just didn't bleed at all, but the other one, it was like gushing. But it was literally just a little staple in my thumb. Um, But anyway, firstly, I can't believe that you, you know, were a field doctor. And secondly, I can't believe your uh, stockpiled bandages have outdone Chekhov's gun. Well, I can't believe you stapled your thumbs together. I'm still in shock about that. (laughs) I was like eight. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. You need a, everyone needs a first aid kit on site. I actually probably saved myself. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, in the end, I was going to be fine anyway. <laughs> but it's luckily I didn't call A&E and like beg them to take me yeah. in and they have no beds. And <laughs> yeah. Would have just been to dangerous find out and also nothing. embarrassing. It would have been extremely embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I once cut myself washing up and went to A&E and they were just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, your thumb's just a bit sliced. <laughs> Uh, not not an issue oh, right. <laughs> but mainly i take care of it myself yeah nice Feel so better. but we have finally uh, an opportunity to answer our comrades questions this yes. is comrades question time today which is like a cross between gardener's question time pmqs and the hello magazine agony aunt column all of those mixed <laughs> together on method row yeah. that's what comrades question time is like and we got questions from the most important people of all, didn't we? Our dear, sweet, beautiful, extremely yes. ravishing listeners. <laughs> ravishing listeners, yeah. Absolutely ravishing. Yeah. So. so, I'm going to hit you with the first one. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready for scrutiny? I'm... No, but I'm ready to answer Comrie's questions. I'm going to hold you accountable. Thank you. Just like... <laughs> as if you were Bojo. <laughs> Just as if you were Keir Starmer. <laughs> exactly. I'm going full care mode on you. Yeah. Okay. So, number one, mm-hmm. hello. Which hello. gossip girl characters are comrades, if any? This is falling out of the first hurdle because neither of us have seen Gossip Girl. However, um, I did use one of my lifelines and I phoned a friend, um, my friend Howard, who said that Juliet was a comrade of any because she was a scammer and she liked to scam rich people out of their wealth i'm assuming the rest of the gossip girl characters so juliet yeah well we love the criminals criminals are comrades all the way mm-hmm. so hit me with the next one okay i'm ready for it question two is covid the end of workplace capitalism will we move on to ultra isolated tech mediated forms of work from home okay a little bit more serious than the gossip girl question mm-hmm. but you know I think it's an interesting question. So workplace capitalism, obviously workplaces are changing in the global north. People will be working more remotely and it's, mm. this crisis is going to accelerate that process. Mm. But we'll still largely have a services economy and you see that with a lot of the so-called essential workers now. Yeah. You know, the people who actually do the things that need to be done for us all to survive. I would say they're the really only necessary workers to a degree and that we should all be sharing those responsibilities. And I think to a degree, that kind of disparity between different kinds of work will be highlighted. Yeah. But um, with, so there will be more workers in the global north, yeah, working at home, but that just gives us new workplaces to organise in. And obviously the home has always been a workplace for social reproduction theorists Mm -hmm. and I would largely agree with that so the question is can you organize upon those lines or is it 
you know, is it more fruitful to organise the, the so-called essential workers? I would say, I would say both. I would say there's opportunities um, in either scenario. Yeah. And the notes from Below Journal has been really good on organising new kinds of workers mm. underneath platform capitalism, um, looking particularly at delivery couriers and mm. other such um, kind of revamped forms of employment. So I would check that out. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think largely uh, the same in terms of especially what you were talking about, um, like highlighting more deeply entrenching like the contradictions and disparities already emerging within the, like the global political economy. I think in the in the um, global north as well as you were talking about essential essential workers who are like have been and still are low paid and afforded very little respect by this government um but also like when you're thinking about imperialism and the like global division of labor in terms of you know the imperial core and uh the periphery or the global south or however you want to describe it a lot of these places the main industries are like manufacturing like mining like extracting primary uh, resources or like it's that like primary secondary sector thing uh, which is a factor of global imperialism but like these for these like workplaces when we're talking about like working from home it like does not make really any sense at all to talk about it like that so i think on one hand yes but also we need to have like a global uh understanding of how this is like operating within the world system definitely yeah. but so you answered that question very adequately but I think you're going to be very tripped up by this next one. <laughs> All of your Marxist knowledge, you're going to have to utilise it yeah. to, to deal with the dialectic of this question. Yeah. Question three. When is Pikmin freaking four? <laughs> I think it means when is the game Pikmin four finally going to come out? Yeah, so uh, I guess I use my phone friend. So I phoned my other friend, but it's not a friend, it's Google. Wait, you're using a lot of phone of friends here, Siang. I've never even discussed the, whether that the, was allowed. Uh, the audience vote um but by which okay, I that's mean, that's socialist by which i mean i googled it which is not socialist because oh no yeah, that's very unsocialist <laughs> <laughs> but uh pikmin freaking four or pikmin four is uh not confirmed it was not confirmed in march when everyone was freaking out about how it was going to be confirmed maybe it'll come out maybe it won't but as we say desire is lack so couldn't concur more. Desire is a chain of signifiers under late capitalism. Mm -hmm. Having said that, we are, of course, desiring beans. Um, yep. So in the meantime, if you want to uh, have a wild freaking time, <laughs> I would play Half-Life 2, one of the few games where the sequel is better than the first game. Half-Life 2 is probably the, one of the best games of all time. Of course, that is a, a game where they live in a dystopian future, <laughs> which resembles our society more and more <laughs> um it starts off with like well yeah basically the world that we live in so if you don't want to do that even if it is extremely good i would recommend nino kuni 2 mm. which is kind of similar to pikmin and it's also just extremely enjoyable um jrpg so i really recommend nino kuni 2 good times yeah. and i love it yet again avoid number one expose yourself <laughs> as a gamer I know, I've become full gamer. Just a few <laughs> weeks ago, I was decrying every gamer, saying that they were counter-revolutionary. And since, since my computer broke, I've dug out the old Switch, blown the dust off, 
<laughs> and gone into full full uh, game game economy here yeah. at the uh, Homerton Castle. R.I.P. Okay, hit I've me with another, a question. Another very I'm difficult thirsty. question. Um, <laughs> okay. Favorite juices? Three question marks. As in drinking, like apple juice, orange juice, heck, even tomato juice. I'm just trying to explain what juice is. Damn. Give it to me straight. Okay, this is this is the toughie. Uh, well, as, as most people that know me know, I'm a kind of teetotal socialist, mm-hmm. like like Tony Benn and, and Jay Corps, <laughs> and I love uh, knocking up a Virgin Mary with a little bit of Tabasco. You know, get it nice and spicy. I love that kind of pungent, spicy kind of sour tomato juice mocktail. That's a mocktail, though. Is that a juice? Yeah, but it. Yeah, because I mean, because there's no alcohol, it's basically just juice. Wow, <laughs> interesting. Okay, uh, I think that a Virgin Mary is an obscene answer to what your favorite juice is. Oh, uh, I'm holding you to account. Um, <laughs> Ouch. My answer is that I love juice. I also don't really drink, uh, but just because I don't like the taste of alcohol, so sometimes I drink cider. Um, but I also love juice, um, and I'll go with a classic orange juice with bits orange other juices come and go but the orange juice with bits stays with you it's a staple and also makes you feel like you're like really taking in nutrition even if you're probably just drinking sugar well yeah i'm not sure about your answer either you're basically advocating all the listeners developing type 2 diabetes i mean i don't mean all that orange juice. drink it every day non-stop i just mean that orange juice is a classic of the juice variety well, yeah, no one could deny that. Yeah. Okay, go on. Hit me with another question. Let's see if we can... Um... Okay, right. <clears throat> yeah. I was watching Captain Fantastic the other day. In the movie, the dad says you should always tell the truth to children, brackets, even when the truth is violence or traumatic. What's your opinion on this? And should we basically treat children as if they were adults? What is your expert opinion as a primary school teacher? That's an interesting question. So I used to have parents... Uh, when you? I when I worked in a primary school last year, I used to have some parents. They would ask me, "Mr. Wilson, uh, should I tell my child about September 11th?" <laughs> what? And I would be like, "Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, because I knew that there were other children who were allowed on YouTube all the time, who were constantly talking about <laughs> yeah. how steel beams can't be melted um, by by jet fuel. So I was like, you've got to talk to them about anything and everything. Yeah." Because they are going to hear stuff everywhere all the time. Um, yeah. Like I've just seen a new book was released on coronavirus to read with very young children. And I yeah. think just absolutely, basically everything. Tell them about everything. Yeah. Um, having said that, you may do everything right with your children and they still end up messed up. Little devil children like <laughs> Damien from The Omen. So also don't sweat it that much. Yeah. Like as Adorno said, wrong life cannot be lived rightly. And... You know, everything you do is kind of good enough in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Right. And I said, teacher, double whammy. Next question. Should support oh, it's staff... A, a education double decker. Yeah. Should support staff be in the NEU, the National Education Union? Uh, I think everyone but bosses should be in the National Education Union. <laughs> it's a very exciting union right now. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the biggest in Europe. And its its joint general secretaries have been probably some of the people that really deserve um, plaudits 
on the left coming out mm. of this crisis because they've been organizing really well and winning things mm. uh you know that we didn't think possible only a, a few months before so i would say everyone get in the national education union having said that any union you're in if it's not working for you then ma make it work for you hold it to account you know take parts of it over if not all of it over mm. you know organize in it and in fa failing that like move to a different union but it's always yeah. what you and your comrades are, are making of it you know Fair. so yeah either either make it work or go to a different union but just just pick one and go for it i would say Fair. okay i'm a trial yeah. question the bosses in education is that head teacher or is that someone else uh well i was kind of joking yeah because we do have head teachers in our union but a lot of them are actually very good okay and we do actually hope to one day uh, merge with the head teachers union Ooh. as well um, who we work with quite a lot anyway you know one big education union to rule them all nice uh, and in the darkness bind them <laughs> that's that's the iww promise yeah <laughs> but but so but obviously there is a tension between having managers and head teachers in a union with you know frontline ground level workers yeah. just like lots of unions have this problem yeah and so local union groups i would advise them to have meetings that exclude senior leadership team and head teacher yeah. uh role holders uh and, unless they really really trust them because they're just you know there is just a there's an unresolvable tension there. A contradiction, I think. as it were. Yeah, a contradiction. It doesn't have to be something that's bad, but you do have to think about it. Mm -hmm. But here's more a question for you, Siang. This is yeah. kind of something you're an expert on. Mm, ish. <clears throat> what happens to the global south if there's a, a global recession or economic crisis? So this is very pertinent, right? Because yeah. people keep talking about recessions all the time, but we're almost always talking about it in terms of Europe, America, yeah. the global north. We're yeah. very rarely thinking about the majority world. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Um, well, when I say interesting, I mean like bad and complex. Um, but I think when, especially like our generation, as it were, think of like a global recession or a big recession, we usually think of like 2008. Um, which actually hit like the global north in a really hard in a way that didn't necessarily hit a lot of places in the global south because it was mainly around like speculation like finance bubbles like mortgages and stuff like that um but of course if there is a global recession economic crisis this time which as we've been saying there will be a slash kind of already is um it will be very different because of the because of its origins in like the virus but also you know its origins in political economy so like i guess it's kind of similar in a way to what we were talking about in terms of uh the global division of labor labor before um in that there are already like a lot of countries or different places in the global south that are facing serious problems um economic problems um specifically because they are like they, their main sectors are like manufacturing, textiles, retails, retail, tourism, like, um, like, uh, primary, like resource extraction, <coughs> which firstly, there's a lot of like informal work and informal economies. And so there's a greater difficulty or like it's almost basically impossible for people to be given a safety net. Um, in the same way that a lot of workers in the global north have, even though like not very many also have. <laughs> 
Um, and also that a lot of this work just actually cannot continue um, because it is predicated on people physically being together and doing things together. Um, a lot of like migrant workers having a very, very like, basically in a situation of like, you could you could call it you could call it like a mass genocide. I don't know. Um, uh, I I think so. Yeah. I think that's not an understatement. Yeah. Um, and then there is also the fact that um, a lot of the these countries, like the relationship is with China, um, is very important in terms of the global supply chain, um, and also the fact that the supply chain for the production of these like commodities um, is like is already in chaos, as you can see from like just like looking at all of these reports about like stockpiling or like whatever. But what it's, it's kind of really pointing to like the problems with the global supply chains um, and a reduction in like consumption um, and then also um, a very important thing is the imperial relationship <laughs> between the global south and the global north in terms of like finance and investment um, so as we've seen in like the global north like even though the response has been dire in basically every way we have also seen that a lot of these countries have been able to do what they previously said was impossible to do and like manipulate their currency or just like make more money to like implement policies um, that they've always said like well this will bankrupt our country or it's impossible because money doesn't grow on trees money is fake and they the problem is political <laughs> will that's the problem in the global north is political will if you're in the imperial core but obviously that is not true if you especially as a global south nation um, the way in which countries of the global south, the imperial periphery, the exploited nations, whatever you want to call them, are integrated into the global like financial, political, economic system is one of exploitation in which they have very little control over their own money, their own currency, over their own economic destiny. Um, as we've seen like countless times in the past, uh, both in terms of like actual coups, but also in terms of like especially debt relations um, and debt as like a neo-colonial neo-imperial like tool of global finance so yeah. these countries are not able to do the like to do the policies that they need to protect their populations from the virus um, and so something that um, we can think about for example is encouraging like you know debt forgiveness or uh, like just thinking about what we can do in the global north to like try and make things easier but then there's also like other possibilities for example so like there was um like <clears throat> um there are other actors so for example um the imf has reje rejected venezuela's request for a loan um to deal with coronavirus but then like china gave them um, alone instead and are still giving them aid so like there are some like ways in which countries in the global south can like act together be in solidarity with each other um, but on the whole if we're looking at uh, like the position of global south countries as a part of the global imperialist economy economy uh, it's it's pretty bad yeah. absolutely i i would i wouldn't disagree with much of that analysis I, I think maybe I would just want to underscore the fact that there's no if about 
whether there's going to be a global recession. There is absolutely going to be a global recession and yeah. and we are in it. You know, this is hell, nor are we out of it, yeah. as, um, as Faust says, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, recessions, in the, the same logic operates everywhere. It, it's almost like a kind of great equaliser for the poor of the world because that logic is that it's everyone that doesn't have that much money or the best means of subsistence, they're the ones that are going to be punished when there's a global recession. Yeah. Even though there's a few people at the top hoarding all the wealth and, you know, they're the ones that should be made to pay for, for the system that they run crashing, yeah. basically. And they're going to try and shift that debt burden onto the global south and also yeah. onto you know the the working class in in the uh, over industrialized countries yeah. or overdeveloped countries i should say yeah. yeah and yeah i i rightly i would also identify like the international monetary fund and yeah. the world bank are consistently sinister actors in these kinds of crisis yeah. and operate a kind of shock doctrine mm-hmm. type tactic where they say we'll give you loans to get out of your scenario or of course we'll give you all the money that you need to get out of the predicament we've put you in where your economy is trapped in a debt cycle and you've sold off all your public assets but guess what you're going to have to sell some more public assets you're going to have to cede some more control to us to america you're going to have to further absorb yourselves in in into the anglo-american empire you're going to have to privatize further you know have a fire sale of what remaining assets you have I mean, there's, there is no crisis that they won't make use of in order to kind of fully neoliberalise or, if you'd like, just kind of subject to a brutal capitalist logic, whatever's left in a country. Yeah. And we will see that happening. But of course, there will be resistance. Like there's, yeah. there's so many different sovereign nations that we're talking about in this big yeah. uh, catch-all term. And mm-hmm. yeah, there are, there are contradictions within that. Like you've mentioned China, obviously there's... There's uh, other ways that um, we might resist this. I think I think an internationalist left should absolutely be calling for debt amnesty. Yeah. Uh, probably also, you know, make a recurrent demand that the that the global currency is not the dollar. Yeah. Um, and be arguing that it's never been more imperative that we change our economic system in total. Yeah. And you know, even in our own country, we've had uh, Dishi Rishi Sunak. Uh, suggesting that all this money the treasury is lending out literally so there's still consumer buying power so that the economy that the Tories run doesn't completely die yeah you know the money that they need to give us for it to survive yeah uh, they're saying it's going to have to be paid back as if it's a kind of loan um which is not how a national economy has to work so even on our own front we're going to be fighting to make sure that the the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, yeah. anyone that's remotely reliant yeah. upon any aspect of the outside world other than their own Ill, ill-gotten gains, you know, they're going to yeah. be punished yeah. for, for, and let's not forget the corona pandemic. I mean, this mm. is the whole sicko mode thesis is that the corona pandemic did not have to hit like this. Yeah. If you have a well-developed uh, state, if you have the kind of capacity you know, it's supposedly in excess, mm-hmm. like quote unquote, that you could absolutely have dealt with this. Mm-hmm. But because of mismanagement and, and Thatcherism. Yeah. Um, if you have a government you know, that cares about pe- keeping everyone, keeping people alive, then yeah. it doesn't have to be like this. But No, it doesn't. And yeah. But the fact that it is like this 
not only does it justify doing things differently, it absolutely justifies uh, the kind of communism that you and I adhere yeah. to. Yeah. And, you know, whether that takes a year or a hundred years, I think yeah. that that direction has to be kind of inevitable yeah. with the, the kind of global nature of this crisis. I just wanted to also to say, so in terms of like when we're talking about, uh, again, this like crisis is not merely, but merely like, highlighting intensifying the problems that already are existing in the world um so i watched a documentary yesterday it was really good it was called history is marching it's on youtube i would recommend it um, oh, i haven't to, heard of it yeah it's really good to understand um like contemporary imperialism in like 2020 um and also um i read uh, the tricontinental newsletter about coronavirus and it was very good um so i would recommend that also yeah, and there's if for something uh, that that kind of further examines the kind of global south and the coming recession. Grace Blakely's article in Novara from a few weeks back mm. on precisely this question is is quite good starter. Yeah, yeah, but this is such a big topic. Let's move on to something yeah. a little bit more localized. Siang. Yeah. What's been your experience of the Cambridge left and Labour scene since you've been here? And a, a kind of further related question mm -hmm. is a listener wrote into us saying, I've recently had the desire to delve deeper into theories of inequality, but I've come to question why that is. Because on one hand, I want to do it to better understand society. But on the other, it's like I'm learning this to use as a sort of ammunition against cishet white middle-class people slash men here at Cambridge. And I don't know if that taints my pursuit of this knowledge. So kind of two different mm -hmm. Cambridge uh, adjacent question, questions. What's been your experience of the Cambridge left and Labour scene since being here? And also, is it bad if when we learn, mm. uh, when we acquire knowledge, if we're using that to kind of destroy men in Cambridge? <laughs> mm, well, so I'll start with the second half first, actually. Um, oh, okay. I don't think that you could ever have like a pure motivated motivation for like wanting to understand things because I just think that if you want to like have knowledge for knowledge's sake that's fine but it's usually not the case and also then like why do you want to know what you're going to do with it so <clears throat> to me the best reason <laughs> to want to understand why the world works is to do something with it um, and you know I agitate for revolution so Yes. Um, on the other hand, I think I do think that being in Cambridge can give you a particular uh, way of understanding like the ruling class or the world um, because it is so deeply cursed in like every single way. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it truly is. <clears throat> that like it's it's very very tempting to focus all of our energies on like one-upping or responding to or trying to like in some way bring down the horrible and cursed people who are here who are in some ways like the absolute epitome of everything that is wrong with this country and to a degree this world but i think i have learned that it there's not really much point to it because they know that class war is happening they're just evil and they don't care and they also don't care about what I think. And they probably don't care about what you think either. 
Um, but sometimes it's nice to like own someone online and like be petty and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, we are pro owning people online yes. for, for your jollies. Yeah. But you know, often it's easy to forget that it's not, it's not praxis. <clears throat> yeah. And also yeah. like, I think sometimes when there is uh, the desire to form your positions or your arguments in opposition to one that is like basically just like the most deeply cursed thing in the world <laughs> it can uh sometimes limit us from or ourselves in relation to these people it can sometimes limit us from understanding everything in a structural context and like what we might be able to do to totally transform things to make them better so uh I wanted to actually mention that because, oh, yesterday, <laughs> basically. Uh, so let's talk about the Labour Club. I've been in Cambridge for basically five years. Um, I wasn't here last year, but I started my undergrad in 2015 and I'm still here. Um, and generally the Cambridge left and the student labour scene have been quite different um, and have like come together sometimes for like, the, the left will like campaign for labour during elections and like the, yeah or yeah. in the ucu strikes they kind yeah. of cohered around that yeah the ucu strikes um and uh, the labor club are like sometimes involved in like living wage stuff or like other other kinds of like left-wing activism um the thing about the labor club is that it changes a lot and i think among like the left which like focuses on a lot of like broader specific issues like climate catastrophe or like militarization or like rent uh, like a free and liberated education for example um and also like anti-racism there's like can be a reluctance to get involved with like party politics um which i did get involved with it uh when i got here it was extremely blairite like to an insane degree um and then i was the co-chair i was a bit of a liberal then but you know we don't talk about that um and then there was like this weird coup but it was like it was like this left wing coup, but it was also orchestrated by an actual megalomaniac, so it was not good. Um, and now it's kind of reverted back to the state of like the people who are involved in the Labour Party are kind of wet um, and wet in kind of like an actually obstructive sense. In that yesterday, like one of the big people in it, like <laughs> just started an argument, basically trying to bait out the left by saying like Tony Blair was actually good, like rich white leftists fight me and like all the people who were trying to fight her were like other working class people and also especially people who aren't white being like why do you love genocide <laughs> and imperialism so that's kind of like the vibe um and there is sometimes yeah i mean it's been like that for a while as well yeah. hasn't it I, I think particularly since the general election defeat people are very um uh, cranky and yeah. uh you know they're like lashing out and yeah. they're pr more, more provocative than before yeah so it's brought out the worst morbid symptoms that were kind of already latent in in left culture and yeah yeah, yeah. sociality yeah i think she would i guess like the reason why i like brought it up not just to be petty <laughs> is that <laughs> i feel like it kind of spoke to a kind of uh politics kind of built on like personal identitarian identitarian opposition to the elite at Cambridge, which is like fine, like, you know, like dunk on rich white people, okay. But firstly, they actually don't care what you think. And secondly, like, please like expand the, the horizons of your politics to 
like what we are all actually trying to do, which is understand and transform the entire world and not just win fights with Henry Mitson, who doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be majoritarian. That's yeah. always a key thing that I, I come back to in my thinking. Yeah. I think there's so many people out there that you meet them when you go canvassing in general elections or if you're in a big trade union and you're talking to other workers, you, you realise most people don't consider themselves political. Mm. They don't think of themselves as interested in politics. In fact, most of the time they'd rather not hear about it. Mm. And so we spend so much time getting into arguments with people who already kind of share similar beliefs to us mm. or have diametrically opposed beliefs and who yeah. are absolutely already certain in their beliefs. And it's yeah. such a waste of time. You know, mm. we, we're often mobilising the people we already know when we need to be organizing and talking to the great mass of people who have not made up their minds yeah. and who might be you know recruited mm -hmm. trained socialists that can be made taught and kept yeah so we can ever grow the movement because that's really what we have is numbers yeah the rich and the powerful they have everything mm -hmm. you know all of uh more or less all of the apparatus of the state to varying degrees all of their wealth that can be used against us, you know, the police tend to side with them. They have everything. We have numbers. Yeah. So getting into petty point scoring and, and arguments, obviously it's a huge issue. Yeah. But I mean, like I often will like speak out and yeah. uh, try and embarrass um, yeah. awful people <laughs> at Cambridge. I mean, Cambridge University should obviously be abolished in some form or another. Yeah. And a few people at Cambridge University should be abolished in some <laughs> form or another. I'll say more than a few. Yeah, but, but like, but the majority are just fine. You yeah. know, they're fine. I don't think it has a particularly conducive culture for producing uh, grounded people, the university mm. as such. Yeah. But the people I've met through UCU, wonderful. The people I've met through Cambridge Defend Education and Solidarity College, great people, yeah. all-time great people, you know, no problem with them. And yeah. even the people I meet through my college, like, pretty nice, like, on the whole. Yeah. So it's, um, I, and I would say to, uh, to that, um, to the other question of, like, you know, is it bad to misuse knowledge or do I have the wrong purposes for getting this knowledge? Like, I started reading books probably for all the kinds of wrong reasons when I was about 14. Like, I just wanted to be cool. I wanted to be hip. I wanted to set myself out from the crowd. Like, I wasn't very happy. But I ended up discovering untold worlds and kind of setting myself on the path out of the kind of awful conformity of the, the noughties. Yeah. And I met people with similar interests and, you know, had experiences that kind of went beyond... Um, you know the more kind of instantaneous of, of drugs and alcohol and it was it was really um very meaningful yeah. to do that and i entered it with the exact wrong purposes so yeah. i think it's absolutely fine i mean i would also say communism is not love it is a hammer with which we <laughs> smash our enemies and of course it is also love as you would probably say but, yeah but know, i mean i yeah. would also say that i like definitely got into like got into politics like got into like reading about things and like thinking about things because specifically i love to argue with people online <laughs> i have made i wrote my entire dissertation in undergrad about the arguments i had with people online like, i love that shit um, oh wow yeah so i'm one of you but also i think it has been useful to realize that that is neither the beginning nor the end nor really any major part of what are the actually useful and productive things that i need to do but it did feel good yeah, that's very succinct. Yeah. 
Okay, hit me with another question. Right, okay. Uh, this question has a link, research. I read this today. Um, it's an article about uh, epidemiologists in the New States. Yeah, America. I read that. Yeah. Um, and it seems that part of the problem was a groupthink among UK epidemiologists since at least New Labour that the only option would be to manage a pandemic rather than prevent it, i.e. pick the option where the healthcare system is overloaded instead of taking the economic hit. Should we be collectively pissed off with the epidemiologists for not challenging this strategy sufficiently until the pandemic has begun? Obviously, now the epidemic modelling community has changed its tone. Imperial Uni's reports that changed the government's policies. But it seems like they have some responsibility. Thoughts? So, there's a kind of trope in fairy stories, bear with me, this is relevant, <laughs> of the evil advisor that tricks the king. And then the evil advisor is deposed, the advisor takes the blame, suddenly all is well in the realm and the king can go on ruling fair and true. I would say we should not fall for this trope. Mm -hmm. It is the whole stinking feudal edifice which is the problem. Yeah. It is not it is not the so-called evil advisor, you know. Of mm. course there is a culture among epidemiologists which is kind of one of neoliberalism that wants to have kind of stripped down services and wants to kind of, you know, be the uh, well-paid advisors to the corporate state. Of course there is, mm -hmm. but they are not the, the problem. Like I knew an epidemiologist that was telling me in December that there's a possibility that a global pandemic could hit. Uh, I met them through the, the university and they were saying that in almost the entire scientific community who's involved in the study of uh, viruses knows that a pandemic could hit at any time and we are not prepared whatsoever yeah and you know even mike davis who is a fantastic uh leftist and has written mm -hmm. on how we kind of could easily enter the age of pandemics he's been writing on this for years so yeah. people kind of knew about this more importantly, if you look at the COVID-19 timeline in the UK, the government knew about this for ages and did absolutely nothing. I mean, worse than nothing, you know. They, they could have started to refund the NHS. They could have done some kind of rapid reindustrialization. They could have bought some of the uh, respirators or PPE equipment that they needed. They did absolutely nothing. And they'd done exercise Cygnus. Um, they'd done... Uh, this exercise that there was a report in front of the whole cabinet that said that if a pandemic hits we will not be prepared mm -hmm. and and so they did know this and so if they chose to hire some epidemiologists that told them what they wanted to hear yeah. then you can't um ever forget that we should be training our fire absolutely on the government mm -hmm. who i mean we saw yesterday uh you know boris is at the hospital they some papers were saying it was like Oh, it's like Good Friday, the Lord has risen again. You know, at the same time as we've almost had like a thousand registered deaths in this country, yeah. probably more because the figures are getting fudged, yeah. which is exactly the, what we, you and me were predicting yeah. uh, when this also began would happen, that yeah. our entire, almost entire servile media are doing absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And so most people think that the government are handling this well at the same time as we're going to be one of the worst yeah. hit countries in the world. And at the same uh, time, you, know, you have Matt Han Hancock, the health secretary, trying to blame like healthcare workers for using too much PPE. Yeah, exactly. Just shifting blame wherever they can, you know, it's completely, I mean, it's reprehensible. Yeah. I mean, there should be some kind of trial after all of this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
by the people for the people. I won't say any more yeah. than that, but there should be what I would describe as a reckoning. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, whether that yeah. will happen, I don't know. But I will accept the left kind of building up, taking over institu- institutions, and building counterpower, yeah. and shifting this narrative to blame actually lies squarely where it should, rather than like, yeah. you know, some random nurse getting blamed for the entire collapse of the yeah. British health system. I just think, when when I yeah. say Britain will be really badly hit, I mean like for for a, a unfairly wealthy country, mm. you know, there's the global South question again yeah. because if if they've had yeah. decimated healthcare systems yeah. beyond what has happened to the NHS here, yeah. which in some ways is still fantastic, in some ways still, you know, kind of social democracy in action and should yeah. be defended but we for for a comparable country we, we will probably be worst yeah. hit by the end of this yeah you know? and there are also like countries in the global south that have been like been able to some degree to like operate not entirely within the structures of like the imf and, the, and they are doing much better <laughs> than the uk with yeah. a lot fewer resources yeah, lots have really stepped up, like yeah, Cuba. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to also comment on, like, when you're talking about the, like, scientific community or the UK epidemiologists, like, this is, they are entirely also, look like, limited and structured by, like, capitalism and, like, big pharma. I was yes. reading, like, um, I think Mike Davis, great guy, uh, wrote, did, like, an interview in a uh, monthly review the other day, and he was saying that, like, the question was, why isn't there a general, generalised vaccine for influenza? And he was saying that actually, sometimes, like a lot of scientists have thought that it might be possible to try and work on that for a long time, but it's not happened because of Big Pharma, because it's less profitable for people to have a generalised vaccine against influenza than to keep trying to produce in, like specific ones for specific outbreaks. So, you know, take what you want from that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this whole thing was contingent. It mm-hmm. could have been different if not for the world system that we have, yeah. you know. And if the USSR had taken over the world, where it's a bit like <laughs> you versus the guy she tells you not to worry about, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah. No, but in, in, in all seriousness, it is because of a world system, but there are also specific actors in the ruling class who are responsible yeah. and at the very least they should be absolutely raked over the coals in an inquiry yeah. at the very least yeah and we mean when we say inquiry we mean an inquiry by the dictator for the proletariat yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah i will i will settle for a state inquiry if i have to but if i can have a inquiry inverted commas <laughs> then you know that's good as well um so this, let's move on to our last three questions. Um, this one is very pertinent to this, uh, the recent week. Yeah. Question 10. When does one, if ever, give up on directly participating in bourgeois electoral politics? Mm. Many of us joined the Labour Party when Corbyn became leader. Would it take Starmer's ascension for you to leave and battle exclusively on extra electoral terrains? When does entryism fail? I love that little uh, extra question at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is very interesting. Uh, I've left the Labour Party. Um, but Rip. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it should be framed in terms of like, it's one or the other. Like you give up on 
you give up on electoral politics, so you like never think about it, never see it, never talk about it again. Obviously, it's a very important thing that shapes like a whole political terrain. But I've left the Labour Party because I do not believe that through like bourgeois electoral politics we can ever achieve the revolutionary change that we need in order for a lot of people in this world to survive. Um, and I guess maybe had something to do with Star- like Starmer's ascension, but I actually joined, I replied to join um, a different party, uh, Red Fight Black, shout out, Marxist Leninist party, um, a few days before the election results were announced. And I think just like going into the leadership election, I just thought like, I'm not gonna stay in this party, like whatever happens, I, over the past like few years and few months especially, I have become less of a liberal and I have also just like, I think, begun to actually realise what the state of this country and the ruling class is in. And like, to me it is now very clear that like, even, even at the best of times, when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader, it was always a compromise like it was always a compromise and i am very very sick of being in an organization that is willing to just like completely disavow the well-being the justice for liberation of the vast majority of people in the world and i also just no longer believe that is at all possible for the left or communists to meaningfully take any sort of power from the Labour Party as a political organisation. Which is not to say, like, I just don't care about any elections that happen. Like, I would prefer for Labour to be elected in, like, local elections and, like, national elections because it's, like, usually slightly better. And especially in terms of, like, local councils. Like, there is a real difference, often, between ones that have been Tory for a long time and ones that, like, well-meaning leftist people in Labour have been trying to, like protect um but if we're talking about like what we want to happen in the world and i think it's extremely urgent that we just need to realize that bourgeois electoral politics is not ever going to get us there and i think it's not really giving up i think to some degree like staying in the labor party to me was a bit like giving up because it made me feel like i was among a lot of people in a mass membership party whatever part of a larger movement of people who had the same principles that I did who were fighting for a better world. But, you know, I've actually realised that the revolutionary, liberatory, radical politics that we need to see have always been a very small minority in the Labour Party, have always been outside of its, like, main mechanisms of power. And I just don't think it's feasible that it will ever, like, actually manage to capture it. So I've left the Labour Party. I mean, it's it's quite possible what you're saying. Even Ralph Miliband, one of the key Marxist theorists of uh, the 20th century, and who also had a very bizarre love-hate relationship with the Labour Party, <laughs> with the emphasis on the hate. Yeah. You know, his book, Parliamentary Socialism, shout out. Mm-hmm. The subtitle could be like Parliamentary Socialism or Why It Will Never Happen. <laughs> and... That's the question I've grappled with my whole life. So I think this episode should be called uh, Care Theory and the Death Drive because <laughs> there is something of the whiff of the death drive about electoralism at the moment. Yeah. 
after what happened in the general election in uh, late 2019, I mean, that was just so brutal. And just to try and grapple with electoralism still at this point, when the world has changed so much in such a short space of time, and when it looks like basically because of right-wing control of the media that they're just always playing on super easy mode and there's always just such a slim chance for any Labour government to get elected. Like something pretty disastrous has to have happened for that to happen. No, I mean, we see, you know? like, disasters happening right now and yes, people are still, like, fucking clapping for Boris, so, <laughs> you know. They are, because they're, yeah, I mean, incumbent governments are just so well-placed yeah. to capitalise on the present crisis. But yeah. to me, that suggests the need for serious counterpower in the form of majoritarian movements. Mm-hmm. And as a materialist, I do still believe that there's a case to be made for social democratic projects, because... The, the manifesto for Labour in late 2019 was had so many beautiful things mm. in, in it. And if you were able to uh, instantiate some of those things, you could create much better um, yeah. terms for organising on. Like yeah. if you think of the kind of uh, failed revolutions of the late 60s, uh, yeah. you know, glo- globally, a lot of those happened because of the conditions from the social democracies produced yeah. like post-World War Two, like the various Keynesian compromises yeah. in America and the UK. So I, I don't think that one should ever focus exclusively on the extra electoral because mm. I think certain things can be won that even if you are the most hardened anarchist or ultra leftist, then it would, it would benefit you certain material conditions for them yeah. to change. Yeah. But... Like I'm, I myself was an anarchist and once wrote a poem that described the ballot box as a form of death and <laughs> you know but and I I think I've I've come around after leaving the Labour Party purely for financial reasons because I was broke AF I might actually rejoin at some point because I want to keep my hand in yeah. you know just like John and Jeremy and Diane they stayed in the party for longer than I've been alive even though they just got constantly berated and sidelined because they knew that there's a possibility that one day a chance might come. And we came so close in 2017, um, if not for how much we'd been attacked by the centre-left and centre-right of our own party. But, you know, possibly, you know, we never could get a Labour government elected. But I'm going to stay in on the off chance that five or ten years down the line, you know, Zara Sultana or someone similar runs for leader yeah. with a, a platform of democratising the party to make it serve the members, to make it serve the working class rather than yeah. all of the members in the working class just being secondary to the party's own yeah. ambitions. And I think it's worthwhile to stay in, if, if not only just for revenge, but also because there might be a strategic possibility there, mm. uh, the kind of thing that you know, a lot of people have theorised how we might transform the Labour Party because of mm. the last kind of couple of years of banging our head against it. So if we ever get an opportunity to actually implement some of these many great ideas that we've had, I think it's worthwhile. I do think, I agree with you, it's right to draw attention to kind of like municipal socialism, like local forms of socialism, mm. that electing left-wing councillors or, or communist MPs, like this can be really useful. Mm. Um, like Rebecca Longberry has become education secretary and she's already working with a couple of groups I'm in education wise like in an unprecedented kind of way yeah and so you know that is just a real asset and 
you can't just turn up your nose yeah. at that kind of resource when there's already so little in terms of left power to go around. Yeah, I think. Um. So yeah, yeah. I think I agree with you in the sense that I don't think that you should ever just give up on it, because I think if you want to decide strategically to do something else, then there has to be something else for you that you think has a better or like it's more useful for you to apply your energies to. Yeah, more purchase. Yeah. I don't think you should ever just give up because that's my listing. And yeah. Well, that's that leads quite well into our uh, second uh, yeah. final question, our penultimate, penultimate wow. question. Okay, here's but a... before I read it out, All I will right. say uh, to kind of close the uh, Labour Party thing off that I would point to communist gay incredible man poet director Pasolini mm -hmm. Pier Paolo Pasolini who kind of had a very funny relationship with the Italian Communist Party his whole life and was kind of always fully supportive of it in a sense he was always also ruthlessly attacking all of its habitual conformity and I think you can be like, you know, within, against and beyond yeah. the Labour Party, even while you might be a member of, you know, ideally a mass membership, non-electoral party, you can still kind of be adjacent to it. You know, we're all in the Labour movement together, for better yeah. or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. But so question 11, the penultimate yeah, question. Right. Yeah. Next question. Is, it's a bit loaded. Um, <laughs> please expand on why anarchism cannot save us. Well, you've just said, Joe, that you used to be an anarchist, so do you want to go? I was. <laughs> in in my heart, I'm still an anarchist. Are you? I'm communist in the streets, anarchist in the sheets. Ooh, or maybe the reverse. Mm. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, um, yeah, I was an anarchist. And despite all of the, the defeat and acrimony of being in labour this last couple of years, I, I wouldn't go back to kind of describing myself as an anarchist or kind of using anarchism as a heuristic because I spent so long trying to think through it and it just felt like I was in a kind of eternal labyrinth that every corridor produced more corridors because in terms of a kind of system of thought it's hard to tell what the plan is what the program is that like what are you actually trying to implement and the scale always just seemed to be small autonomous communities like small like you know the international squatting movement is massive but it's always just kind of an individual squats or interacting in networks and things and I, I just came to realize that i think you need big organizations i think our problems are too big yeah. you know you need you need uh you need the kind of political horizon that requires you know millions of people to be kind of acting through a kind of party or trade union vehicle together yeah. um such such is the dire situation we are in and the enemies are raided against, are raided against us yeah. that you know riots love them brilliant more riots please but imagine if there was like some massive riot that like dwarfed um you know 2011 2010 and the whole country was actually brought down then what's going to emerge out of that if you don't have something prepared then you're going to have a right-wing coup you're going to have the military ruling you're going to have some kind of awful rotting bourgeois apparatus yeah. kind of reasserting itself that you need to have something to take over yeah um ideally we'll end up in a communist world that will kind of be basically 
um, indecipherable from some anarchist version of utopia, <laughs> where pow power is so decentralized and so many uh, communities and uh, counties and areas are autonomous that they're actually just the same thing. But yeah. I think in the meantime, you need to have a serious strategy and think about what projects can we have now which are actually going to further our program. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah, I think the nature of like capitalism and imperialism, especially like increasingly in the 21st century, is just the huge accumulation of wealth, power and, and resources in the hands of the very few, the ruling class. And I do not understand how we will be able to succeed in defeating them or bringing about anything better on any scale without you know what you were talking about a program so um i have actually um a couple answer which is that i was reading a book by jody dean called comrade an essay on political belonging um i would recommend it um but within it she um she's a great defender of democratic centralism love it within it she quotes uh, Angela Davis describing her decision to join the Communist Party, um, which is, I wanted an anchor, a base, a mooring. I needed comrades with whom I could share a common ideology. I was tired of ephemeral ad hoc groups that fell apart when faced with the slightest difficulty and tired of men who measured their sexual height by women's intellectual genuflection. It wasn't that I was fearless, but I knew that to win we had to fight and the fight that would win was the one collectively waged by the masses of our people and working people in general. I knew that this fight had to be led by a group, a party with more permanence in its membership and structure and a substance in its ideology. So that is why you should join Communist Party. <laughs> wow, Angie Davis, yeah. putting it much better than me, but it's essentially what I was trying to argue. Yeah, yeah. mass, structure, substance, yeah. as opposed to the ephemeral. I mean, but she puts it beautifully. And what was that Jodie Dean book that the quote uh, uh, was Comrade, featured in? Comrade, an essay on political belonging. It's very good. Oh, okay, great. Well, let, we'll put all of our recommendations and things we've been reading in the, uh, in the, description. the description for the episode. Yeah. Um, no. So this is um, the final question. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Although there is actually a kind of bonus question at the end. I'm going to throw both of you at the same time. All right. Yeah, I'm going to see if you can handle this. <coughs> question 12. Thirsty for the revolution. Predictions on how imminent she is much appreciated mm -hmm. and then bonus question 13 please why <coughs> hmm. well you've been knocked back by this <laughs> you've developed I'm, I'm a rasping thirsty. cough i'm so thirsty for the revolution i am gasping and coughing but <laughs> predictions i'm also thirsty for the revolution prediction on someone how imminent she is well revolution is a first trap to be honest yeah actually this is true. I think that, so, optimism for the world, but pessimism of the intellect. Please, why? Why? Because we always believe that revolution will happen and that it can happen and that whatever we do is in the service of making it happen. But also, I think that false optimism will only ever lead to despair. And we have to have a commitment, but not a belief that we ever, whatever we're going to do tomorrow, next year, or in five years, is going to immediately or somehow just bring about what we want to see, or that we have to kind of wait for the revolution to happen, because it's not going to happen, except for as many people as possible doing as much work as possible, based on a realistic understanding of the power relations that structure our world. 
Um, it's not going to happen except for that. So why we do it is because we want to transform the world and we're committed to, in our entire lives, to doing that. And when it's going to happen, I don't know. Um, I don't think we're in, a, we're in a position to know. It could happen at any time. I don't think it's going to happen very soon. Maybe it won't happen in my lifetime, but I don't care because yeah, what I, I mean, want is for it to happen. It could be tomorrow, but, you know, it might not be in our lifetimes. I think it's very, um, you know, a pertinent for you to say that because it, I think it comes down to faith. Mm-hmm. Not that, oh, you've got to have faith, like some kind of vapid, you yeah. know, moral rejoinder, yeah. but that it's that faith is a kind of deep matter. That it's a, a belief that sustains itself. Yeah. And the possibility of hope is material. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to make that hope seem seem plausible to ourselves and others mm-hmm. because we have no choice. You know, we want and need the total transformation of this world that we're in that yeah. preserves all of the best about it, but also we have to meet in combat with its very worst excesses and yeah. and evils and that is you know, it's it's going to be very twisted sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think of um, Victor Serge, who I think was actually an anarchist involved with the USSR. So, you know, shout out, shout out to the anarchists for sure. And he said that uh, life's greatest meaning lies in the conscious participation in the making of history. Mm-hmm. And most relevantly to us, he said, even when defeated, one's expended energies are in no way lessened for it, for it would have been a worse error merely to live for oneself caught within traditions which are soiled by inhumanity mm-hmm. so yeah. i think you know that question please why and also when will the revolution come it's they're very intertwined for me at the yeah. moment yeah same. Uh, on a slightly lighter note i would recommend playing the class struggle board game <laughs> where you and you as the worker and the capitalist class move around the board collecting assets until you hit the middle square which is the final showdown wow (laughs) and it's probably the one of the best board games to theorize the revolution outside of this game i played once where you're the dutch peasantry and you have to win by eating the prime minister wow that's so esoteric (laughs) yeah it's very good but i think we have reasonably adequately adequately answered all of the questions in this kind of epic comeback episode i mean don't don't call it a comeback we've always been here exactly but this is kind of like season two yeah um yeah where we kind of restart everything this is now that i'm not on strike anymore the short film after (laughs) the end of the regular season (laughs) oh yeah what no it's like the end of an avengers film with the bit at the end except the bit at the end turns out to be the whole rest of your life no (laughs) you're saying something different you see ah you you didn't know where i was going with it yeah but it won't help. This, this is the end credits scene where that's actually the real film. Okay. Yeah. And the whole cinema melts and everyone stands up in joyous praise <laughs> of the proletariat. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. So take care, comrades. Take care. Um, thank you again for the questions and uh, thank you for listening. And if there's anything we can help with, don't hesitate to get in touch. We'll send another question. Absolutely. Alright, all the best. We find the body.